Welcome to the Raising Up the Next Generation podcast. I'm your host, Dan McPherson, and each week I interview someone who has found their discipleship niche and is excelling at raising up the next generation with their unique gifts and passions. We cover a range of topics, and depending on your role, some interviews will be more relevant and applicable for you than others. But no matter what, whether you're a student, parent, youth pastor, mentor, leader in another capacity, every guest will provide encouragement, challenge, wisdom, and practical ways for you to learn and develop as you raise up the next generation. A couple of notes about today's conversation. Much of what Jeremy talks about surrounds the family, fatherhood, roles in the family. But at the end, we talk about single people, couples without kids, widowers, etc. So it is applicable to all people, but it is very countercultural. It really challenges the Western idea of individualism, the Western idea of family. So for some of you, this will be super compelling. You will love it. For some of you, you will bristle and feel the urge to push back. But no matter what, I would encourage you to listen to the end. It's a fantastic, challenging, encouraging, thought-provoking conversation. And now, today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Raising Up the Next Generation podcast. I'm your host, Dan McPherson, and my guest on the show today is Jeremy Pryor. Jeremy is co-founder of Family Teams, which is an organization that provides resources and materials that are all designed to equip and encourage families to pursue God's design of a family team on mission. Jeremy is passionate about leaning into the biblical model of family, which we're going to talk about today. And he has a heart for helping families understand what that means, how they can do that for themselves. Jeremy owns multiple businesses. He blogs, he hosts podcasts, he speaks at conferences. He's the author of multiple books, including Family Revision, How Ancient Wisdom Can Heal the Modern Family. And Jeremy and his wife, April, their five kids actually live not too far from me in Cincinnati, Ohio. Jeremy Pryor, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Excited to be here with you. Yeah, you. I I may not have told you, but I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. So oh, right um, on. I was not, just in Lexington last yeah. weekend. Okay, good deal. Yeah, not not too far. Yeah. We we regularly make the trek up to the zoo and yeah. um and whatever else. So love Cincinnati. So family teams. You started that. You're passionate about that. Let's just start with. For someone who that's a new term to them, maybe they know what a family is, they know what a team is, (laughs) but putting those words together um, maybe doesn't make sense or they don't. So just explain, what do you mean by family team? Yeah, it it means that it's it's a certain kind of family. And this is like a, a weird category for a lot of people. Most people have never asked the question, what kind of family do I want to build? Yep. Right. We kind of, right. We just sort of inherit a philosophy of family that we grew up with. And so, uh, and so I, and I did as well, you know, I grew up in the Seattle area and I inherited a certain kind of family. And so a family team is a kind of family that is attempting to work together to accomplish things that, that they see the family as a, as a complete unit, that every single 
member of the family is there for a strategic reason and that we are better off trying to accomplish things uh, together as a team than assuming that that really we would be better off doing everything as individuals. And so we, we take that even a step farther and say, we believe that um, God designed families to be multi-generational teams on mission. So that that's like a, that's a major paradigm, you know, shift for a lot of people. They're like, what? And, and so, yeah, there's a history behind that. But, but as we read the scriptures, we actually think that the church has adopted um, sort of a modern, fairly recent view of family. Um, which is as a springboard for individual success. And so we contrast that with this idea of about being a team. So it's a kind of family. Mm-hmm. Talk about why it's important to know what kind of family you are, to identify that, to to know that. I, I know probably a lot of families just think they're families. I mean, right. I'm a, we're a family. Yes. So what Obvious. is, you know— so uh, talk about talk about that. Why is it important to identify what kind of family? And maybe just from your experience, kind of thinking through this, what what are some other kinds of families that you see in society, in specifically Western culture? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, what kinds of families there? Yeah. So the other kind of family that I would say is most prevalent in our culture. Um, we like to kind of sum up as a springboard for individual success. So what mm-hmm. is the family like? And, and, and you kind of get at your philosophy of family or the kind of family by asking, what does a successful family look like? Right. And so in our culture, uh, generally speaking, when you create a very nurturing environment for your children and each person in the family uh, launches off either on a daily basis or that ultimately when your kids get older uh, into their individual life then that is considered in our culture, a very successful family. So if you're mm. sitting around talking to your friends and you're in your fifties and everyone's sharing, well, you know, I have a son, they're, they're over here. I have a daughter that's over here. They're, they've, they've launched out into their life. Uh, they are, they are living out, um, you know, their individual life, maybe starting their families that that idea is kind of what we assume is a good uh, model for what a family is. And so, and probably the easiest way to understand that model of family is the analogy that most resonates with that model, which is the nest. So when we think about what a family is, a family is is some, you know, you, you create it, you, you and your wife or husband create a really nurturing environment, this nest. You nurture the, you know, the children for a certain period of time. But the real goal is to launch your kids out into their sort of next phase of life. And so a successful nest is one in which that nurturing and protection happens really well, and one in which the uh, the, the chickies you know take off and are able to sort of replicate and start over uh, with their families. And so the idea that the family is a nest is really uh, that was the only model of family I even thought existed. I mean, I mm-hmm. uh, in my story, I I was certainly like I think everyone that I knew thought that's what family was until I uh, moved to the Middle East. <laughs> And I was shocked to discover that this idea family was cultural and not innate. So that that's kind of yeah. where things the, the sort of started spinning in my life. Um, but yeah, that's that's what that's how we think about a family usually. Yeah, tell me more about that story. Moving to the Middle East, um, thinking through that, and then obviously now you're not in the Middle East right. anymore. Um, so. <laughs> 
some might call it the Middle West. That's right. So, I know why um, they call it that, but they do, yes. <laughs> I Yeah, I don't get it either. I'm from Kansas, which is definitely the Midwest. Yes. So <laughs> I don't really feel like, oh, but it, oh well. Um, so talk about talk about your experience, your kind of your story in, in that. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, uh, I, so I, like, yeah, I grew up in, in the very West, like in the Seattle area and my experience of family in that, and especially I was involved in youth ministry. And so I spent, uh, three or four years as a youth pastor, as youth intern at the church I grew up at. And so we were primarily, you know, working with kids that were, you know, uh, um, kind of not churched in the public school. And, and man, I, I had, I just, it was just, incredible the degree to which uh families had damaged these kids and how few of them had parents that had stayed together Uh, and so as a single guy i just thought well this i this family thing is really like it's like an experiment that has gone totally off the rails it just is Mm -hmm. destroying people um and so i i that, that was kind of my experience seeing that over and over and over again in the ministries that i was a part of in the seattle area and what one of the fallouts from that was most of the a lot of the friends I grew up with, uh, they began to not even want to have kids or even even get married, like to cohabitate, get a dog. Seattle was actually, I think, the first city in the country where there were more dogs than children. And that yeah. idea made total sense to me. I mean, why would you want if you know to impose upon yourself and in into these children this incredibly broken, um, you know, sort of way of thinking about a lifestyle called the family? Mm-hmm. And so the, I hadn't thought about that super deeply, you know, but I was 23 years old and I, I had seen this and it was very concerned. And then I was just plucked up and I, I went to Jerusalem for a semester abroad uh, to study Hebrew. And the first thing I started noticing uh, in that trek was just how I just kept seeing fathers and children, like fathers with large, even in the, on the plane ride, there was from New York to Tel Aviv, there was just so many children and so many dads like working and being with their children that, you know, on a, for an international flight, it really surprised me. And then as I spent the four and a half months of living in Jerusalem, I just kept seeing this scene everywhere, you know, with dads and kids. And and then one day I, I was sitting on a bench and I watched as this group of, of fathers uh, like walked by and they were all pushing strollers with little kids in toes, like a, you know, like a daddy brigade. I've seen a, a mommy brigade, but I'd never seen, you know, fathers do this. And I just, it really, that was the first time I think it entered my consciousness, what I was observing. And that was something's different about this culture. Like men, like particularly were, were not just like putting up with the, the, you know, children, but they they seemed passionate about Hmm. both their role as fathers and, and having children. And so I started, that sort of started on a journey of just like investigating how, where, where, where does your idea come from for fatherhood, for family? Like when you think about a family, what is a family to you? Like, why would you, haven't you heard how annoying children are? You know, uh, they just get in your way and, you know, and so, um, and so there was a combination of just trying to study the scriptures and just watching this culture try to live out a lot of the things that are just said in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, verses and like Hebrew or Psalm 127 that says, you know, children are a gift from the Lord, like, you know, like arrows in the quiver of a young man, how blessed yeah. is, is a man whose quiver is full of them. Like, I, I could not have believed something less than that verse, you know, like how blessed is the man who has lots of kids <laughs> like that yeah. to me sounded like, you know, but when you, when you encounter a culture that actually believes that that's living it out and the fathers are, are, you know, enjoying that, that really surprised me. So as I started talking to a lot of these Jewish fathers, the way that they 
sort of that when you got kind of got into the foundation of the way they thought about family, where does it come from? They they really were very inspired by Abraham. Um, and so we talk about the three great Abrahamic religions that came out of the Middle East, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And both Judaism and Islam, if you study kind of the roots of what fatherhood is in those two cultures, they're extremely influenced by Abraham, but Christians are not. Like there's, I'd never met a Christian who who, who thought about Abraham primarily as a father. We we talk, talk about him oftentimes as a as a man of faith, but as a as a father, and uh, that th- that would be relevant in the modern era. Like that had never even occurred to me, and so that's where for me the journey started. Of like, wait a minute, what what does the Bible say about the family? And and is there are there just you know an endless number of models for how to do family? And that the Middle East they they do a a version of family that really appeals to men. And in the West, we do a version of family, you know, that's more of this nest. Um, or does the Bible actually give us a blueprint for family? Is there actually, you know, God, when he came up with this idea of family, did he have a design in mind? Hmm. Yeah. So thinking that was, that was a question kind of I had for you is where specifically do you see family teams in scripture? And you kind of pointed to that with Psalms um, thinking about Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had yes. Father Abraham. That's just I didn't really know that the only... song from youth group. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. We don't sing that one as much anymore. Oh, uh, that's maybe kind of I need out to, of... <laughs> Maybe I need to bring that back with my high schoolers. But um, yeah. so maybe some some specific examples in scripture where you see that. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of I mean, when I was in seminary thinking about a book that I that we read was um Oh, some uh, man! I should have not done this on the spot. <laughs> something, something out, something Eden with Sandra Richter. Um, mm. What's the, what's the book? Oh well, that was bad. I shouldn't have done That's that. Okay. Anyway, thinking through yeah. the family model and how ha- even houses were structured um, with families to make multi generational. But but for you, what are maybe some specific examples that you regularly point to and think about? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the first thing that is important, and you're you're trying to study the scriptures in any area, you know, theologians call this the principle of first mention. That oftentimes in the in the scriptures, when something's mentioned, oftentimes there's a sort of a, a like a purpose, you know, or it's defined, um, and then so for the rest of the times you're reading the scripture, you're like, oh, this is what this is about. So. Where where do we find the first family in scripture? And it's really in Genesis one, right? So it's like right there in the first chapter. And and so I, I believe that you can basically, you know, construct a biblical definition of family just from Genesis one. Um, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's and, and shocking, I think, if you really get a hold of it. So, you know, God obviously creates, you know, starts doing this creation in the in the six days. And then on the sixth day, he created male and female gave them his image. And then he says, you know, um, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it rule. Uh, and so essentially he's, you know, creates this prototypical garden and he, he creates humans to, to, to have rulership over and that they were to subdue the earth. But what's really, uh, surprising is that he gave that mission, not to a nonprofit, you know, not to a government, not to a business, but to a family. He gave a specific mission and assignment Mm -hmm. to the family. And if you look at each piece of that, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and rule, that that's a progression of, of really a mature family. And if you ask, you know, just say, okay, what, what kind of family, 
could do those four things? Like what, what, what would you have to be? What type of family would, would have the ability to do those things? And you, you're, you're clearly giving this not to any individual, not giving this to the man or the woman, but to both of them and to their offspring. So therefore they need to work together to do this. I mean, it's assumed of course, in the way that that's structured, this is, this is not being given to an individual. So therefore the family has to work together. We have a word for that team. Right. Now you, if you, if you have a, uh, and then could they accomplish that, that mission in one generation? Like, could they, was this given to not just a, like, was this given to a nuclear family, right? So that God expected Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, and maybe Seth, you know, to, to accomplish the mission that he gave them to subdue and rule the earth in one generation. Well, of course not. Like, I mean, they couldn't do it with a, you know, four or five of them. It would require many generations. Okay, so now we know that a family is a team, but it's also multi-generational. And we also know that that it was brought into existence for for the purpose of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and rule. Therefore, it has a mission. So you if you look at that, the way it's described, the family is described in Genesis 1 as a multi-generational team on mission. And that's a totally different kind of family than we raise in our culture today. Like we don't raise families to work as teams. We don't think about families multi-generationally. So going back to, you know, when you think about the nest, you'll, you know, if you believe that the nest is the family, um, just by a- answering one question, can you name all of your great grandparents and, mm-hmm. uh, how many people, if you line up a hundred Western families, you know, and said, okay, I'm going to go from all the way down the line and, you know, how, how many of their great grandparents could they, could they, they, they couldn't be able to. And the reason the reason they they won't be able to is because they're irrelevant to their life. That they've started over. In the nest model, the family tends to have about an eighty year memory. So you will forget um, because they're the generations are not are not um, critical. But in if yeah. you if you have multi generational families, I, I met I met a man recently who could name um, and everyone in his family could name uh, thirty one generations of their family. He's a Korean man um, and. And so going back to about a thousand AD, um, every single member of their family was required to memorize 31 generations all the way back to the patriarch of the family that was given multi-generational family land by the, the then monarch of Korea. Um, and wow. he, 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 when I, we, I was having this conversation with him, he was like, yeah, we, we've been doing this for a thousand years. I, I don't see Jeremy, how this is relevant to anyone else. And it, he and I had a really intense conversation because I was like, well, like, what did that, what does that do for you? Your identity? Like, how did this guy was incredibly successful? Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I began to talk to him about um, the difference between coming from a family like that, where there's, you know, the stories are preserved, where the family line is understood, the kind of identity that that provides for children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren versus if you assume it's all irrelevant and no one's remembering that, um, what happens to, the individuals in in those two kinds of families. And so I, I began to really, as you start to dig deeper and deeper into this, you begin to really uncover the reason why the families in the West are basically designed to fail. Um, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they're essentially, when you take something and family, if the family is designed to be a multi-generational team on mission, and then you turn it into something else, you turn it into this nest, then there are predictable things that are going to happen. And, and so a lot of what I've begun to work out what Jeff and I both been, you know, sort of teaching about and talking to people about is really just like, let's, let's like understand the root reasons 
Um, because like, well, I'll give you an example. So in the church, there's sort of an assumption that if we just focused on the family more that we would solve the problem, that, that the problem with men or fathers in Western culture, especially in the church is that they just need to love their families more and be more dutiful toward their families. And so if you go to most, you know, most, uh, you know, ministries about family or, you know, they're basically trying to get us to, to pay attention more to our family. Even the word focus on the family, I think was perfect description of what we thought the problem was, you know, that we're, we're just distracted people, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. There's a, you know, mm-hmm. famous quote where James Dobson, who started focusing on the family really made that case that essentially the problem with the Christian family is distraction. Um, now the problem with that theory is that when you go to the Middle East, these men are, are not less distracted, nor are they less loving than Western Christian dads. In fact, my experience, I, I found there are, you know, Western Christian dads are very loving, um, you know, uh, compared to many other cultures, but man, they, they think about family as a nest and that there's something about that, the way we think about family in our culture that I don't know how, if I want to basically sacrifice my life to, to perpetuate a, a nest that I know is going to self-destruct, you know, in 20 years, I, I, I think that that's, that's, that's not a compelling vision for many men, but if, you know, you could contrast that to like what this Korean man was given, which was like, here's 30 generations of our family that has been working, you know, and working together and building things up. And you have, you know, in your generation, just a small amount of time, we're going to pass the baton to you and we need you to continue to further the family. That's a very exciting, um, mm-hmm. thing to be given. And then to be said, and, and not only are you, are you given, you know, all of the, uh, the vision and the stories and the identity from your ancestors. But in your generation, here's an entire team of people that you get to coach to, to continue to build and further the mission of our family. Um, man, that's why in the Middle East, men who instinctually or intuitively believe that that's what family is, they tend to be the most focused on the family because that 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 idea of family resonates deeply with both men and women. Whereas in our culture, we have a vision of family that is compelling for maybe a certain percentage of men, guys who are you know fairly nurturing in their temperament. But I would say the vast majority of them, um, this is a really hard thing for them to get super excited about. Yeah, and the, I mean, what you've just described is very compelling. Of the the especially passing of the baton. I mean, we love we love the idea of teams. I mean, we're just you know as a culture we. We get behind teams um, in in all facets of life, and I think about so many families who are have members of their family who are on other teams yeah. that 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 the family supports. But thinking about so so that that man who knows thirty one generations, it's it's pretty easy in a sense for. For him to get on board with that, but for someone who says, "Okay, Jeremy, that sounds great for you, but I'm I'm stuck here in kind of the nesting model and mindset, and I'm surrounded by what are what do you see as some hindrances to being a family team that we need maybe some barriers that we need to get." over but maybe some things that we can grasp onto like a rock you know that that we can that we can grab um that's already set in place that maybe we can use as 
a handhold or a foothold um, to propel us forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I do. I I think it starts with with really loving the role of we're talking to men of of fatherhood and saying, wow, there is nothing more valuable than than being a father because I get to coach my family team. Like this is this is a because I think men are are built for this. I, I think that that the handhold that men need to grasp onto is to uh, repudiate this idea that I'm, you know, that essentially my job is to, you know, sort of provide uh, some level of protection for the chickies before they launch. Like that, that, that is, you know, if you're really struggling as a man, that does, that's not a very compelling vision. I might, I might be able to do that for you know, a certain number of hours, but I, I'm just going to, I'm going to be endlessly distracted by other things primarily other teams, because that's what I'm built to do. I'm built to build things. I'm built to lead things. I'm built to coach people. And so as I'm doing that and every other aspect of my life besides the family, then I'm going to naturally gravitate towards those things. So that's why men gravitate towards things like sports and business and places where they get to build things, get to be, you know, what men are designed to do, um, to really accumulate resources and, and to, and to see something, you know, come into existence that is likely to outlast them. That that's a great vision and a compelling thing for men. So I think that the first step is just to say, guys, you have that. It's called a family and it's incredible. It's a gift from God that you get to, you get to coach and lead this team. And so I, I think as men kind of understand that identity, they get really excited. I, 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 cause I used to think that, you know, we have to, we sort of have to train men to like kids or something like, you know, naturally kid men don't want to be around children. And that, I, I believe that right up until the time when I uh, enrolled my son Jackson, um, he was seven years old at the time in in a in a year of football. And so I remember we came to his first practice, and I you know drove up, and I'd never met anybody from this team before. This was a you know a buddy of his a, you know little another little seven year old was going out for football, and Jackson wanted to join him. So we're like, all right, well, let's do this. We you know we we had some bandwidth that that you know, uh, order. So we went in and, and as I walked up to his team, I noticed that there were just as many men around these boys as there were seven-year-old boys. And so I was like, Whoa, there's a lot of guys here. And then I brought Jackson up to, you know, the group of men that were standing there. And I said, Hey, this is my son, Jackson. He doesn't know anything about football. <laughs> this is his first time. And <laughs> I, I'll never forget three of these dads like descended upon my son and trained him for two hours straight about every little detail about like how to get into a stance and how to come off a stance. Yeah. I mean, they were in heaven loving this. And I was like, wait a minute, do men hate children or do men not know what a father is? Like, because I think if Abraham were to, you know, get on a time machine and come back to our time, he, I don't think he would relate to modern Western fatherhood either. I think he would look mm -hmm. around and say, actually, you know, when I look at like that college football coach, that's more like what I did. I mean, if you read, if you read Genesis, Abraham had 318 trained men in his household. It, we, we read about that right at the beginning of the story of Abraham, because there was a, you know, fight there. His nephew Lot got kidnapped. So how do you end up with 318 trained men in your household? Well, what was Abraham doing? He was constantly training men, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a totally different vision for fatherhood. That's what coaches do. Coaches train constantly. And the one command given to fathers in the New Testament, you know, where children are told to obey their parents, and it says, "Fathers, bring your up, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord." 
Mm-hmm. So the one thing we're told to do is train, 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 train up your children. Uh, I didn't even know how to do, I didn't, like, what is that? Like who trains their children for what, you know? And so sometimes, you know, there, there's a small percentage of men who maybe, you know, immediately like think, okay, that means discipline, you know? And, and so mm-hmm. you get, you get sort of the Christian father who's sort of the, you know, rabid disciplinarian. That is not what's being described there. The assumption is that you're going to raise up a team and teams need to be trained just like every other team. And when you're training, it's fun. Like, you know, Jackson was having a great time. And so were the, so were the guys that were training him to play football. Um, this is an amazing privilege as men to get to train. But it's like, you know, today, I think that if if a father really inundated with sort of the messages of our culture started to train his sons and daughters, I think he would feel like he was doing them a disservice. Like, you know, I am imposing my individual desires onto these children. And so what's actually way better is that we would hand our children off to other people and let them train because that's not my role. My role is, I don't know, chief uh, recreation officer. You know, like, like I do the, I do fun stuff or, you know, like I said, maybe, I mean, again, it's just so, it's, it's so unattractive the way that we've envisioned uh, being a father. And so I would say just anti what men are designed to do, anti-masculine. Um, and, and this is, this is a predictable result that men abandon their families in our culture more than any other culture that we know of in Western civilization. Like we've never seen an epidemic of fatherlessness like we have today. 60% of all children today are going to spend some part of their childhood in a house other than the one with their biological father, more than half of of children. Um, and so how did that happen? Like either the family is the worst designed thing that's ever existed because it just predictably breaks down more than half the time, or we've totally confused what family is. And I know this is a really, really hard thing to swallow. It's like really hard to take a step back and actually imagine, maybe I don't even know what a family is because there's, you know, if there's one thing people think they're an expert at, it's like they could define family because all, we all mm-hmm. were raised in one. And so this is yeah. so counterintuitive for people to imagine that maybe we don't even know what a family is or fathers are or mothers are, or a son is or a daughter is. But I actually don't think most Western uh, people know what those things are. Yeah, man, I've I have so many ways that I want to go, but um, let me start with. So you you've talked a lot about um, fathers there. Yeah. So um, thinking about, I want to get super specific to you guys personally as your own family, but let me start kind of at a thirty thousand foot level um, with what is in in a family team. Kind of what is each person's role on the team? And then maybe speak to a little bit about someone who's listening, whether it's a mom or a dad, who they really feel like they don't fit the mold of like it's a it's a different they take on different roles um, than maybe what is um, I don't the word I don't want to use the word stereotypical, but I will like um, just the stereotypes of a man and a woman. Um, maybe speak to that a little bit of someone who feels like they don't quite fit the mold of society. How does a family team work there? But now I asked a bunch of questions. So 30,000, 30,000 foot level, kind of what is the role and then how does that look? And, uh, yeah, I'll just pitch it back to you. Yeah. Well, that's a really challenging one culturally for us. And I, I, I have to preface what I'm about to, I'm going to answer your question, but I have to preface this by saying that, that there is an assumption in our culture that what I want or what would be best for me as an individual 
is more important, more valuable than what's best for my family. So if I am about to articulate a, a role for men, women, sons, and daughters that is at some level of variance with what a listener thinks is actually best for them as an individual, then they are trained by our culture to believe that their individual uh, self-expression and their individual identity is superior to fatherhood, motherhood, daughterhood, and sonship. So it's important to say that I, I yeah. believe that my whole life. I mean, and that's a very strange idea that the ER, yeah. our individual identities are more important than our family identities. But if you go to a counselor, even a Christian counselor and say, you know what? I feel as an individual, like, like I'm really built for X, but I, I, I can hear that, you know, in my family, it really needs Y. Most counselors, Christian counselors will say, you need to live into your individual identity. That's what's important. That's who you really are. And this, this is a cult of hyper individualism. That's radically anti-biblical. So that that's the first thing. So I so so I think it's so I important. feel I feel people I feel people bristling. Yes. Right. So just hang on. I'll yes. t- I'll tell people just just <laughs> keep listening. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I think I think a big reason why I think what what we need to understand is that we believe that the the these different things determine value. And so like if if you imagine when you when you look at a sports team like a football team. And you see, you know, a coach and a quarterback and a running back, you know, and, a, you know, and a linebacker and these different roles. There is not an assumption that people have that basically whatever, you know, there's that these roles themselves. Like if I if I had to be a linebacker, I'm basically a lesser person because I'm built to be a linebacker. And so to be a linebacker, you know, I it, it sort of says something about my lack of value because we know on a team, that's not how you think as a team. In a team, you yeah. don't think in individual categories like that. In a team, you think, how how can we win together? And so you want to develop skills in whatever area of your those roles are in order for you to further the team. And when somebody makes a sacrifice, an individual sacrifice on a team so that the team could win, that is celebrated in, in the context of a team. So I think that's why I always want to go back to our previous conversation and say that you have to first determine if the family is a team or not, because if, mm-hmm. if that's totally that. And I agree with the culture. If the family is not a team, that is really inappropriate. Like it is inappropriate if the family is a club, you know? And so basically you're saying, well, no, there are rigid roles and you need to make sure that you, you know, personally sacrifice, you know, for the sake of, of clubs, like a book club, it doesn't exist to, to win as a team. A book club is there because as an individual, I want to get something out of this. And if, if I, I'm not getting anything out of it, then I'm, you know, there's no reason for me to sacrifice for that, that kind of a group, if that makes sense. But, but we have a, a, the opposite intuition when it comes to teams. And so, so going back to the question, yeah, if there is a, if we're a team, then I really do want to know what these roles are. What are the critical roles so that we can fully live into be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and rule. And I do think that these roles become very, very important because they're elements of a team. And none of these roles have, um, there's no superiority from a perspective of like value, but there, there is a design and it is beautiful. And, and so to the extent that you can live into the design when you're on this team, you're going to help your team score. You're going to help your team win. You're going to help your team succeed, which really is about doing those four things which are all critical for, for us to be a part of. And now I think in the 
new covenant. It's about making disciples. Like we're, we fill the earth, we're fruitful, we multiply, we subdue and rule through, uh, through the kingdom, through making disciples and through spreading the gospel. So the, that context, I don't know if you want to jump in before we kind of go down any more like roll rabbit holes, but I think that's, that, that is really a, the, I know culturally for us, so challenging. And I would say too, again, that if, if we're not a team, then roles become kind of weird. Um, and I think yeah. that that's why the, we have to first understand what, what the family actually is. Yeah. Good. No, I think, um, well, I'll just, yeah, I don't have anything to say. Yeah. So, but I will say when we think about a team, like a sports team or whatever, it's just a no brainer that, you know, we, everyone has their role, but we're all moving together in the same. And we don't, we don't think about that as a family. So I think that that in and of itself is going to be a big barrier that we have to get over is just from a mental perspective, um, thinking about that. So that's, that's all I'll say there. So I say, yeah, just go for it. What are some roles there? And then maybe, maybe it'll be helpful to you as well to just think about you guys, you guys personally as a family, how you've lived that out. Um, and, and I would love to hear that about some rhythms, some you, you guys from, so I listen to a lot of your stuff, so I know kind of your rhythms and traditions and things that you do. But for those who aren't familiar, I would love for you to kind of share some of those things that you've built up as a team. But um, so roles and then maybe at 30,000 foot and then for you guys personally as well. Yeah. So I would say that the, the role of the father is is to uh, they're the ones they're the that they're the role in the family that maybe is most aligned, like I said, you know, with the head coach of the team. And so they're going to be ultimately responsible before God for how the team functions. Um, and so just like in any team, when there's a constant breakdown of discipline in the team, or there's a lack of vision or whatever, whatever you diagnose, you would eventually get to the head coach and say, man, what's going on? You know? And so I, I believe that God is going to hold the father accountable for how the team functions. And because he has that incredibly hard responsibility um, he needs to be given authority to be able to make decisions for the team. Um, and th- this is, you can imagine in a situation where you are constantly taking your team out onto the field to play the game where that kind of clarity is critical, right? Um, so be- because, you know, most Western families are designed basically as a place where we, we like a nest where we come back you know, to kind of get recharged, have fun, get some connection, and then launch back out into our individual lives. I think it's kind of ridiculous for there to be any kind of authority structure in that world, because it's like, what exactly, why would you do that? But man, if you take your family, like we have many times on the mission field, like where we're actually with our children in very intense environments, um, man, it's, it's really helpful. That's why there's not, you know, there's, you don't find very many really successful, you know, sports teams with two coaches. Um, so I don't believe that there, that authority is shared because I think that ultimately when you're leading a team, that level of clarity and accountability is critical. But again, yeah. you have to choose that you want to be a team for that to make sense. I think that in that, in that context, the mother, you know, she is, I think most aligned with the need to create that kind of a, a nurturing atmosphere for the family. You know, the mother is the one who, like we read in Genesis, going all the way back to the the um, principle of first mention, where uh, it were, we're told that there was not a suitable helper 
for Adam. And so God made Eve so that she could be that kind of a helper for, for him. And that she's really the one who makes her husband a leader. Um, the, she's the first one who says, I'm, I love this guy. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to yoke with this man. Um, and I will follow him. And it's through that, 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 that boys become, you know, a husband and someone who actually begins to learn what it's like to lead and have vision. And in terms of like how different things are broken down, I think there's a ton of, you know, freedom in terms of like, okay, you know, how much do they collaborate in order to lead? And, you know, are there times where, you know, the, where the husband delegates to his wife, lots of authority to lead the family all the time. We do that constantly, but that doesn't disrupt the larger reality that I'm ultimately accountable. And so my wife needs to have a lot of, you know, compassion for me because that's very, that's a hard weight to, to carry. And so she, she needs to be thinking about how can I help my husband, you know, and help the team, you know, stay together and stay connected and those kinds of things. Um, as we kind of figure out as a couple, what this looks like. And then, in, and then as you kind of continue down, you know, the son and the daughter in the family, you know, sons, I think that my, my favorite sort of, um, parable where Jesus talked about the son, the kind of the role of son was when he talked about how the father, um, this father, you know, had a vineyard and then he lent it out to a bunch of tenants and then kept sending different servants back to collect the proceeds. And they kept beating up the tenants and throwing them out. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Jesus says that the father says, I know I'm going to send my son. They will respect my son. Now that, that, that is a really good way to understand what a first century son was. When we think about a son, we think about like a five-year-old or something. They thought about somebody who's representing the family, the heir apparent, the person who has tremendous respect because of the, um, the role that they're going to play in the family. And of course, if they're a prodigal son, then, you know, that can break down dramatically like Jesus described, but ultimately the son is being trained, um, to be, to represent the family and to take that baton and to, to lead the family into the future. And then um, my favorite sort of biblical picture of daughterhood is the book of Ruth. And we, we extensively study that and we've studied that with our daughters. It's a fascinating kind of case study of, of extremely skilled uh, daughterhood, you know, starting with how, um, you know, when Ruth is in that conversation with Naomi, where she says, you know, where you go, I will go, uh, where, where you lodge, I will lodge my, you know, my God will be your God. And, um, that, that sort of level of loyalty and love for the family, um, that only exists, I think in the heart of a daughter. Um, and so you can awaken, and, and these are all, I, I think things that are in each of our hearts, like, like men have the ability to feel like a father or feel like a son. Women have the ability to feel motherhood or daughterhood. And th there's a huge assault to sort of, you know, wall off that. One of the things that I, I think we've essentially trained men to be good mothers and daughters to be good sons. Um, and I think this is disastrous for the family team. Like it's really important that fathers learn what it, what it is to lead a family. And it's really, and not just nurture. And that, that, that I would say is, you know, when I read a lot of parenting books, um, they're really designed to help, help fathers um, Im improve in their motherhood. And likewise, I think that there's a huge confusion in our culture about daughterhood. Um, I think that our culture cannot stand daughters and wants women, especially young women, to learn to be sons. Um, and I think that there is a biblical reason for us to embrace some of these 
you know, these are always spiritual pictures of things that we're, we're really trying to understand that go beyond family, right? So daughters do need to learn how to be a firstborn son in the kingdom of God, because we're all in Christ and Jesus was the firstborn son. And so being in Christ, Paul says, there's no longer any male or female in that statement. He's saying in Christ, you are a, a firstborn son. And so your maleness or femaleness is, is come second in the kingdom to your firstborn sonness. And, and that mm-hmm. goes from, and just like, and similarly for, for, you know, masculine men, um, I just spent uh, a weekend when we were down in Lexington, I was training a group of men basically to walk with God the way a betrothed um, girl would pursue her um, beloved. And and that's that I believe that that's when we, we talk about what it means to uh, for us to be the bride and Jesus to be the bridegroom in the kingdom of God. We pursue Jesus like the bride pursues the bridegroom when they're betrothed. And, and this is the my entire model for how to think about how to walk with God. Um, and so these gender roles, ex- we need to keep them clear and keep the family um, clear about what these are, not so that they crush us as individuals into some, um, some, some kind of caricature of what we really were meant to be, but we are, we're living out like, like characters in a play, um, a particular spiritual reality. And this is why when Paul says in Ephesians five, Hey, this whole male, female, husband and wife thing, it's really, it's really not about family. I mean, at the, at the, at the basic, it's really about Jesus and his relationship with the church, like family and marriage, he says, exists to, to be a, an expression to the world, um, and to our own hearts about the kind of relationship Jesus wants to have with us. And so I, I believe in preserving these, these roles so that we, you know, they do func- they do create a functional family. They do create a beautiful family. Then God designed them. But really what's at stake is that we're supposed to be characters in a play about God. Like this story is not about us. We're, we live in a mm-hmm. God-centered story. And so when we, when we change the roles in the story, the world can't see the spiritual reality that's behind the roles. Um, and so that, that's where I'm even more concerned that if we get confused this, um, it's not just the world, but I think, I think we're getting confused at this point. Mm-hmm. Like what, when God says he's a father, what is he talking about? What, what is that? Does he say he's really nurturing is that primarily what he's talking about, you know, or is there, is there more to fatherhood? And I do think being a nurturing father is important, but I think there are lots of things that are being left on the cutting room floor there in the, in the, in sort of the character that we're supposed to be, or when Jesus, his favorite thing to say about himself was, I am a son, you know, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God over and over again, a son, a son. Well, what happens if a culture doesn't know what a son is anymore? You know, when he says, I do exactly what I see the father doing. There's so many interesting things Jesus says about sonship that are being lost today because we don't know what it is. And so it's like, how, can I even know Jesus? Can I know God, the father, if I live in a culture that, that has erased every vestige of what those roles represent in order hmm. for the individual to triumph, that's a disaster. And, and, and those of us who are in the church or part of the kingdom, we need to understand what's at stake here. Yeah. So good. So many things to think about there. So for you guys as a prior family team, uh, some some rhythms, some traditions, some things that you've put in place that cement that teamness and are really putting you on on mission. What are some things that you do practically, kind of whether that's daily or weekly or monthly or yearly? What are some things there? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that you have to understand that is if anybody's hearing this, like, okay, I want to build a family team. Like, how do I do it? It's like you will open 
the toolbox for how to construct a family. And for most of us, there will be no tools in the box because every tool that we give our culture essentially is designed to build up the individual, right? So sports teams, the way we, we separate, you know, every kid's in a different sport. You know, every kid goes to a different class at school. Most of our kids go to different, you know, Sunday school classes at church. And we're just constantly separating, separating, separating. So what is it that, what are some traditions or rhythms that you could, you get to do together, right? And so um, a few of those, one that's so important, I think, is the table. So, you know, the table is the place where you actually experience your family-ness. And a lot of people, you get a tiny glimpse of this experience, maybe once a year at Thanksgiving or something or at Christmas dinner, where it's like, oh, like this, you know, we're kind of a big multi-generational family. And it's incredibly awkward because we get to practice this like, you know, once a year and, we, and we've right. lost connection with what that is. And so what we encourage families to do is what Jewish families have done for, you know, for millennia. And that is that they, they craft a weekly multi-generational family meal where, you know, you at that meal, you know, and we do ours on Friday night and, you know, we do it, you know, to kick off our, our Sabbath the way that, you know, a lot of Jewish families do. And so at that meal, you get to, you, this is, there's no place that you feel more like you belong than at that table where a father is a father, a mother is a mother, a son is a son, a daughter is a daughter, and you experience that family nest. And there's different ways that Jewish people have learned to kind of stir up you know, that sense. And so like one of them is there's a time, in, you know, as at the beginning of our meal where we're just like, has God blessed this family with any daughters? And so all the daughters come up around, you know, a matriarch in the family, you know, my wife or, you know, my mother-in-law or my mom who, who are coming to those meals every week. And then they bless each of the daughters, you know, may the Lord make you like Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. And may she, may he give you the heart of, of Ruth the faith of Mary and the righteousness of Christ as you build our family from generation to generation. And then we ask, are there any sons? And we bless the sons. My dad usually does that. People are experiencing who so at this meal, we tell family stories and we, there's no, you know, better to go. And so there's just a sense of familyness, And it, that took a long time to cultivate. It took us like a couple of years of practice of kind of on and off trying to figure it out. Like, you know, first it was like pizza night and, you know, like something simple, but we just were like, let's just, let's just like call one of these meals the, you know, the family meal, the multi-generational family meal. And after, you know, several years of getting better at this, that's when we started to invite, you know, extended family, you know, grandparents into, into this meal. Um, but this was a really major transition for our family to try to try to get just, the, just a table time that, that where this was happening. And this is different by the way, than, you know, Christians, when they think about, you know, yeah, well, I believe weekday dinners are really important because we all need to kind of catch up because we're all doing our own individual thing. And then we, you know, poof, we're all, you know, in our own boxes or thinking about, you know, what else we want to do in the evening. This is really a, where you really hang together for two, three hours every week. This is a different kind of experience. So that I would say that's really a big one for us. Um, you know, and then I would say another one that, that is a little, you know, unique, but I, I kind of alluded to the fact that sports are, you know, kind of you're experiencing individualism at school. Um, if you, if your kids are going to school, then you experience individualism at sports. So we've tried to do family. Like I've just, I've been scouring, you know, the, 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 the sports world for what, what are sports that you could do as a family? And, um, those are hard to find, but you know, we, we had a whole season where we played tennis as a family. Um, we had, a, we had about three years where we all did Taekwondo together and you know, all the way down to like Kyra. She was only four years old at the time, you know, and my kids got to see me, you know, just trying to do spin kicks and falling and, being, you know, yelled at by this drill sergeant, uh, <laughs> master, you know, like it was like right. a really, it was a, it was a really intense experience for me and for yeah. our whole, 
all of our, you know, our whole family, but it was incredibly unifying to get to be learning something together. Now we do pickleball as a family. Um, cause you know, you can do that at a pretty young and, and old age, like it's great, um, for, for that. Yeah. So it's like slow motion tennis. Um, so yeah, those are, right. those are a couple of tools that are, have been really helpful for us. Yeah. Super good. So this is probably a different, a whole different podcast and we're coming up on the end of our time, but I want to, want to have you speak super briefly. Where do single people and maybe, um, maybe couples without kids, um, widows, widowers, um, how do they fit into a family team? Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think it's important to, when you, when you were talking about multi-generational family, there really is no one who doesn't fit into a family. And in, in mm-hmm. Psalms, it says that God placed the lonely in families. Now, because of the brokenness of family, you might have people that don't know where they belong. You know, so people, um, where they, where, where do you go when you're going to experience family? Um, and that's incredibly tragic and that's where we have an epidemic of loneliness too in our culture. Um, but from a, yeah, from a kingdom perspective though, it's really, I would say a few things that are really big. One is that singles, you you will never find in the Hebrew scriptures kind of singleness being, um, being promoted as a potential blessing, but it's, it's very clear in the new Testament that that does happen. You know, Paul makes Mm -hmm. that clear in first Corinthians seven, Jesus makes it really clear to his disciples in Matthew 19. And so, uh, yes, sing- singleness, and Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, the reason is that they can be wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And so one of the things that we believe is that singles are really designed to be in a in a dynamic relationship with families. And so you see this playing out in Luke 10, where Paul or Jesus sends out the disciples two by two and tells them, you know, if you can't find a family then get out of those villages. So he sends them out to different villages and they're going in and they're actually living with families. Um, and so this, I think this is a really beautiful, you know, the kind of army and the outpost kind of picture of the kingdom expanding and that there are certain gifts given to single people, which is their ability to be wholeheartedly devoted, their ability to live a more simple life, their ability to integrate with within families that aren't their own, that really represent um, the kingdom of God in a beautiful way. And so we, we love having singles live with us. We love partnering with singles. Um, we think that they're incredibly strategic uh, element in the kingdom. So families and singles just have different gifts, Paul says. And so we both need to live into our gifts. Um, in terms of like widows and, you know, I, one of the things that, that I find really interesting is in First Timothy 5, Paul says um, to families that your first responsibility um, is to repay your parents by providing for any widows in, your, in, the, in the home before, you know, you're even even before ministry, he says, like your first responsibility is to care for widows in your own family. And that's, that sounds like it came right out of the Torah, but it, you know, it's, it's in the new Testament. It's a part of the 10 commandments to honor your father and mother. There's more verses in the Torah about caring for parents than there is about caring for children. Um, and so this is just a hugely misunderstood and neglected part because we don't think about family multi-generationally. Those verses just, you know, I've never heard someone preach on first Timothy five and Hey, by the way, if you have a widow in your family, make sure that you do not serve in a ministry in our church until that widow is cared for, <laughs> which is a direct command. Hey, Paul, yeah. I mean, the, it's very, very clear. And then your last question about people who can't have children. Um, and, uh, so one of the things I think is important to understand in the kingdom. So, there's a direct statement to barren women in the kingdom given to, to us in Isaiah 54. So right after the Messiah comes in Isaiah 53 and pays for our sins, the next thing that is being trumpeted in, in, in the story 
is that barren women are giving birth to enormous numbers of children, way more children than, than people that can have physical children. And I think that's a direct prophecy of, of the uh, Matthew 28 commission to go and make disciples. That people that, and you saw in, in many of those disciples were, were likely single at the time, they, they were actually having more children, right? Spiritually, they were making disciples. And Paul's language of discipleship is all familial. He calls Timothy his son. He says to the Corinthian church, you have 10,000 guardians, but not many fathers. And I was a father to you. Here you have a single guy mm-hmm. who's primarily doing ministry out of the fatherhood identity. And so yeah. I, I think that, that, that singles and people that are, are struggling with infertility are supposed to be mothers and fathers as well. And I think that they're supposed to represent the explosion of, of uh, reproduction that occurs in the kingdom through disciple making. Man, so much good stuff here. And, uh, People are probably reeling for various reasons, things that have been hit on. And But the good thing is you have tons of resources on all uh, all of these things going more in depth. And so uh, where can people go to find those things, whether it's family teams, podcasts that you have, um, books? Talk about that. Where, where can people go next if they're like, yes, this is interesting to me. Yes, I want to know more. Yes, this is something I want to do. Where yeah. can they go? Yeah, we'd love to um, help you guys if, if you're you know, thinking about making this transition or want to learn more. If you're just sort of stewing on this thing, like, oh my gosh, this is like kind of really a lot to take in. Um, yeah, I would say just, you know, diving into one of our books is probably the most uh, helpful thing. They're, they're all on Audible as well. So Jeff's uh, Jeff Bethke's book, Take Back Your Family. Jeff does an incredible mm-hmm. job in that book, really talking through the history of the family, how we got to where we are, mm-hmm. especially culturally. And then he lays out a, a theological case for for what we're describing, gives tons of practical things. My book's called Family Revision, um, and that really is going after like my story, that sort of theological case. All these identities that I've been describing uh, are in there, and we talk about seven tools to help the family. Um, if you're if you're if you really want to make the transition, we're going to be in Tampa. Jeff, uh, Alyssa, uh, April, and I are going to be in Tampa for a family teams weekend. Those weekends are great because they give you like a whole you know uh, space of time to just think about the, this. And we, we talk through the tools that's actually coming up um, in the middle of October. So, so you have to jump on that quick. If you want to come and join us in Tampa, um, but you can go to familyteams.com for that. And yeah, we got the family teams podcast. I have a personal podcast. Um, we're yeah, doing a lot of stuff on social media. So we'd love to interact with you guys on there. If you've got questions or if you want to dive deeper, we know this is, this is not an easy transition. So we've tried to design as many resources and there's a number of online courses as well at familyteams.com. If you guys want to dive into those. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time. I told you 40 to 45 minutes is what (laughs) I like, and you have given me way more than that, and I'm thankful. So I asked two questions to my guests at the end of every episode, and the first is, what is something that you are reading right now, listening to right now, that is challenging you or encouraging you? Just something, doesn't have to be about family teams, just uh, something in general there. Yeah. I'm right in the thick of um, Carl Truman's book um, on the on the self. I can't remember. It's it's something about the um, the rise of, and triumph of the the modern self. Yes, of the modern self. <laughs> oh. I actually was just talking with someone about that the other day. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a thick like read in terms of like it goes into the philosophy, the psychology. But man, I mean, we do need to understand this stuff at a deep level as believers because mm-hmm. something like I said has happened and. You guys heard me, you know, talk about the hyper individualism. Um, I think it's really important to understand the inside of that. And so I found um, 
you know, he's got almost an exhaustive uh, sort of description of, of how that happened, where that's taking us. I just think we have to be really aware of, of what's going on there. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, my uh, yeah, I was talking with someone just the other day, and and we were talking talking about that that very thing. So, second question: the theme is raising up the next generation. Who is someone in your life that you saw you as the next generation, believed in you, and raised you up? Mm. Yeah, the probably one of the people that had that influence on me is a guy named Ed Kelly um, in the Seattle area. He was my youth pastor, and he was a really unique guy because he. Um, you know, when I, when I, I later learned that a lot of people think about youth, youth ministry as sort of like a, you know, a fun twenties something thing, but the, but Ed was, he was actually an executive at a bank in Seattle and gave that up to like disciple us, you know, uh, high school wow. kids. And so he took me and, you know, spent six months one-on-one just discipling me, uh, at a very, very impressionable time in my my spiritual life and it, I, it totally transformed me. So yeah, I would say that, that, that having people that, especially at that stage, um, take on, you know, that very direct and very intentional sort of training up that generation. I I am a, I'm definitely a product of, of people that made the commitment to do that and and the sacrifices. And yeah, I, 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 I don't want to give that back to others because that had such a profound impact on my life. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, thanks again, Jeremy. I'm so grateful for you and your ministry and your passion for encouraging families and, and equipping them. And you just believe in the family. And, yeah. and that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. So, so grateful. And uh, thank, you for, thank you for taking more than 40 minutes <laughs> uh, um, and being willing to share your time. So, yeah, my thanks pleasure, so Dan. Much. Thanks for having me on. So much to think about and digest in this conversation. Like I said at the very beginning, some of you will love this conversation, are all in, say, yes, I want to learn more. Some of you are feeling that tension of the Western idea of family and how all of that works with everything that Jeremy just talked about. But if you want to learn more, check out the show notes. I've included links to Jeremy's content as well as family teams and the other resources that were mentioned. And I would encourage you to go check those out and to find out more. If there is someone that you have in your life that you think would benefit from this conversation, share it with them. I know that they will be blessed by Jeremy and the conversation today. If you want to continue hearing more conversations around raising up the next generation, make sure to hit the follow button on your podcast platform, hit the notification bell so you get a ping when the next episode is released, which is this coming Monday. I interview Crystal Chang. Crystal is with Orange, which is a curriculum-based company that puts out curriculum. We're talking about Gen Z mentoring. She has a heart for raising up the next generation, and it is a great conversation. I know you will be blessed by that. For now, blessings on you as you are raising up the next generation where you're at. We'll see you next week.